I'm Heidi Zuckerman, and this is About Art. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is about art. Hi there. Thank you so much for tuning in today. My guest is Sotheby's principal auctioneer, Oliver Barker. Ollie joined Sotheby's in 1994 and moved into the contemporary department in 2001, rising to the chairman of Sotheby's Europe, senior international specialist in 2016. He is a key figure on the rostrum at major auctions in both London and New York. And if you have ever watched him in action, you know he is extraordinary. It's really exciting to me when I stand up at the front of the auction house to kind of look at a, at a room, I mean, albeit somewhat petrifying because of the public nature of those auctions and the kind of the entertainment requirement. But when I look at the room and I kind of wonder, okay, what's that major dealer doing here? You know, he wasn't here six months ago when I stood up. And then in the back of my mind, I kind of think, well, actually, I know why he or she is here because they're representing a client for that major Agnes Martin painting that, that's coming up. And Today's conversation, I'm certain, will be amazing. And here we go. I'd love to start off by just kind of making an observation and folding that into a question. And the observation is really how great you are at your job and how phenomenally long you've been doing it. I was just recording the intro before this and saw that you had joined Sotheby's, which I knew, but reflecting back on in 1994 and the business has changed so much in that time and the fact that you're still there and that you're so successful there I think is is really amazing so the question would be and and I'm sure we'll unpack a lot of that over the conversation but I think the first question might be what do you enjoy the most about your job right now because certainly you've done a lot of things over time and the business has changed. First and foremost, thank you, thank you so much for saying all of that. And as it happens, actually, my very first kind of full job as a kind of fledgling cataloger in the Impressions to Modern Art Department was indeed in 1994. But funnily enough, actually, it was October 1993 that I actually first started at Sotheby's as a unpaid intern. Um, so mm. actually, I guess if you, if you count that, I've, I'm actually just celebrating my 30th anniversary in the business. But I think, as you rightly say, Heidi, I mean, the, the business has changed kind of beyond recognition in some ways. And I think looking back, clearly to be as institutionalized as, as one is after a 30-year career in one company, and effectively, this is still my first job, I've never worked anywhere else, has required that for me, there have been a number of kind of very innovative and somewhat sort of exciting projects and you know i'm very much somebody who kind of embraces the new and the change in the business has been very engaging and i'm certainly kind of somewhat entrepreneurial i think with even within the frame of an auction kind of house setup so i mean i, th I think one of the most exciting things for me has been number one being owned privately i, th I think 
for the majority by far of the career that I've had at Sotheby's, we've been a publicly listed company. And I think the private ownership suits companies in our industry extremely well. And secondly, I think also, you know, just the, the opportunity is really that ironically lockdown gave us and particularly this transition to the live stream auctions has arguably been, I think, the most transitional and most profoundly radical change in our business. And I think opens up a huge amount of opportunities that we're only just beginning to kind of get to grips with at the moment. I appreciate the start as an intern in October of 2023 and, and the celebration of the of the 30 years. My For two reasons. One, my son is starting out his career and he is starting as an intern in a senator's office. And then, which is amazing. And it, it's so interesting that that's really how careers start and are built. And I started at the Jewish Museum in December of 2003. So I am also just about 30 years in the museum field next month. So it is, well, actually Friday. Yes. <laughs> so it's, um, it's quite interesting. And it, it is museums and, and the auction houses, I mean, they're totally different than, than what we started, what we started with. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the most sort of public part of your job, which is when you're now in front of a camera, as you talked about the live stream, and you know, when you're in front of an audience. And what do you do to prepare for that moment? And what does it feel like to you? It's so interesting, this question, because I mean, auctioneering is is, is probably the kind of the core part of the, the more public facing part of my responsibilities. And even though I'm no stranger to kind of the podium, whether it's London or New York, or indeed in reasonably kind of high level public facing auctions, like one of our major contemporary sales, or most recently, the Emily Fisher Landau collection sale in New York, or indeed recently in London, we did the Freddie Mercury sale, which was a kind of bit of a one-off, but very much kind of celebrity focused sale. I, I think, you know, it, the, the, there's no understatement on my part that actually standing up as the auctioneer is kind of an incredibly profound experience as the person who's representing the company, the person who's representing mm -hmm. the vendor of the objects that we're selling in question. And I think also, you know, the person that's really representing the group of colleagues that are helping sell the sale. And that could be both kind of, you know, client facing colleagues, as much as it might be the, 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 the staff that help put on our exhibitions or the staff that help us produce our catalogs or people in our warehouses who've been involved in working with things. And I think it goes, it's a bit of a given in, in both the auction houses and I guess also working for galleries and, and beyond that we're not collectors, but we do work with some of the world's greatest collectors. And so we become in a way agents for a very short period of time for some key works of art, which we pine after. And it's interesting, you know, we, we work for several months on a particular work of art, which comes into Sotheby's and it's first unpacked in one of our warehouses and then ends up kind of going through the auction room with the bang of the hammer and off it goes into its new owner or custodian's ownership. But for a short period of time, it's really interesting. I mean, we build up a very, very profound relationship, both with the object and the object's owner. And, you know, Heidi, it probably won't come as a great surprise that there are objects which as they leave the auction house or you hammer them away and off they disappear behind the rostrum, there's a sense of profound loss that you're not likely to see them again until you're re reunited with them, obviously, in the new owner's kind of house. But there's others which, quite frankly, don't necessarily hold up to anything like the same level of aesthetic kind of fulfillment. And I think that's one of the other key reasons that I I've kept focused at Sotheby's is that I, I just love dealing with great works of art. And, that, you know, I think 30 years later, and particularly as one develops an eye, I mean, there's just nothing more fun for me or fulfilling to 
get to know the great works of art and get to know the owners behind them and get to know kind of the team at Sotheby's who are cataloging these works. And that could be as much for a great old master painting. I mean, for example, we're selling an incredible early Rembrandt in London in early December, as it is Emily Fisher Landau's 1932 Mary Therese masterpiece that I, I wielded the, the gavel for two weeks ago in New York. So, you know, we're incredibly lucky also to be working in an auction house environment, which is about, is about as close, I guess, to the Metropolitan Museum in New York, just in terms of the sheer breadth and diversity of history that we're handling. And I often actually think that we're as close as you can get to kind of, you know, the gift shop for the Metropolitan. I mean, if you're a very deep-pocketed customer who walks around the kind of galleries there, whether it's in the Oceanic or the Tribal or the Old Master, the Print or the Impressionist Modern Galleries or indeed the Contemporary, if you want to buy some of that stuff, then come to an auction house. You know, that's what we do. Your enthusiasm for the objects is contagious, and I think that's part of what makes you so good at what you do. And I think that to be in this field for such a long time, it has to come down to the love of objects and the kind of awe and joy and giddiness, really, that comes from that proximity. To be able to inhabit the physical space with an object, even for a brief moment in time, right? And to, to be able to come back to that object and look at it closely, it's works of art have energy. And that's something that, that you know to be true. It's, it's so interesting because it won't surprise you that it, the preface for handling a number of these objects is the foundation of, in some cases, very, very long-standing and trusting relationships with the owners of these works and that could be done in a variety of different ways whether it's kind of physical proximity to these collectors over the years and I spent a large part of my year on a plane traveling to, to, to collectors homes and talking to them about their collections and by dint of fact that I've been around longer than most actually many of the collectors that I've worked with are now getting a little bit older in, in age and I think they're also just beginning to think more profoundly about you know the passing of those objects either to children or you know maybe even institutions and we are in the midst of this incredible kind of asset generational shift I suppose you know between one generation and the next and I think that's particularly profound with great collectors in America as much as it is in certain cases throughout Europe you know but it's amazing actually once you get an object in for sale just how profoundly different it can be to what you knew about that object when it was hanging in the collector's house and i mean heidi again you'll be no stranger to this when you take works on loan i mean there are a great sense of respect or insurance or kind of condition checks that kind of go on but it's amazing how particularly in terms of environment objects change and when we take things on we often will take the most important objects on these kind of global tours so that the world's great collectors whether they be in paris or hong kong zurich new york london or elsewhere can have a look at them prior to them actually hitting the auction block. But in every single location, I, mean, I remember recently actually thinking and looking at the Emily Fisher Landau Rothko, which was one of the very few single panels, which were part of the Seagram mural commission, but which are not part of a major institutional collection, particularly the Tate, of course. And it was in Hong Kong. And I remember looking at it and just thinking, we've got the lighting wrong on this picture. There, mm. There's definitely much more to get out of a picture like this. And actually, by the time I saw it again in New York, I mean, we, we definitely made improvements to the lighting. And actually, I thought the same about a major early Jenny Savile painting, which, fun enough, we sold in New York two weeks ago. But actually, the buyer of that painting, the Long Museum in Shanghai, had bought it from a London sale. So again, that was very much kind of the second time on the block in a reasonably comparative short period of time between the two. And with that painting, I just thought, oh, my God, this looks so much better now in New York than it ever looked in our galleries in London. So you're absolutely right. It's it's that knowledge of objects and I think a kind of instinct 
depth of knowledge and seeing some of these objects is like seeing an old friend. But as many positive experiences one has, actually, I think conversely, there are many negative experiences. I mean, works of art, which in your mind's eye, you felt were much better than actually they appeared to be the second time of handling or once you see them again, perhaps in a museum loan show or something like that. So no, it's really interesting, actually, I think as, as the course of time passes, just how one's eye and instinct and, uh, or taste, frankly, changes as well with time. I agree and totally agree with you about the lighting. I think it's the single most important thing. And that was actually the first change that I made when I came to the Orange County Museum of Art and with the architect. I changed the lighting designers because works of art need that light. If they don't have the natural light, they, they need the appropriate light source so that they can be seen the way they were intended to be seen. I'm curious about the experience for you of spending time with collectors in their homes. And it's something that I have spent a lot of my career doing as well and something that I, I really love because there is something about this shared love of objects and having that common language. And honestly, that's why I took the job at the Aspen Art Museum because every single person that I spoke to there had a story about being moved by art, what you know, what we call the aesthetic experience, being moved to tears or or being moved beyond the moment in time in which you're currently standing and and to speak to people who understand what that means and who have that shared experience and and who then get to live with objects that that make that happen. I'd love for you to just share some of those experiences of the conversations and and what are some of the stories that that you tell in terms of when you've been moved in that way? No, definitely. Well, well, certainly one of the very earliest experiences I remember was as a junior cataloger in the Impressionist and Modern Department, I had the great privilege of meeting the late David Sylvester, who was one of the great sort of thinkers and writers and curators on art for much of the kind of the 70s, 80s and 90s. And he was probably best known for his writings and relationship with the likes of Alberto Giacometti and also suddenly Francis Bacon. But he, together with someone called Sarah Whitfield, was the, the person that wrote the René Magritte catalogue resume. And I made the stupid mistake of asking him when I showed him a Magritte gouache what he felt was behind this picture in the artist's mind. And without missing a beat... David kind of said, well, Magritte would have just told you, well, behind this picture is probably a piece of foam and behind that there's the backing <laughs> board and behind that there's the back of the frame. And it was, I mean, he was being very kind of literal, but at the same time, I kind of realised very quickly that whether it be someone like him who is, is instinctively or was instinctively smart, as well as collectors, I think you have to be on your game all the time because, I mean, curators and, and collectors and museum curators are amongst the kind of the smartest people that I've ever met and I remember also in the early 1990s when Sotheby's had the privilege of handling the Picasso collection of Stanley Seeger and Stanley was was very lucky in as much as he was born very wealthy I mean he he had inherited an incredible sort of fortune on, on his birth and basically became a sort of professional collector and in 1994 we handled the collection of 78 Picassos from his collection, which we were selling actually in New York. And the early 90s, I mean, people forget that that was a kind of, you know, period of intense droughts kind of in the auction market. I mean, largely because the Japanese had sort of exited the market en masse in the very early 90s, having almost single-handedly as a kind of community kind of, you know, propelled the market to kind of previously unseen highs. 
suddenly kind of with the credit crunch there, they kind of exited massively. And that was also when the kind of, you know, Alan Bond defaulted on the Van Gogh irises, which eventually made its way into the Getty Museum collection, almost by default, actually. But there we were in June 1994, kind of wondering, you know, who the hell is going to buy all these Picassos? And we did a traveling exhibition of the highlights to London. And I'll never forget walking around the galleries and just feeling... I cannot believe that there's one individual person who actually owns this depth of work by a single artist. And the sale was a huge success. I mean, the, the fact that there was a kind of, you know, credit crunch and the economies and globally were, the world then was a very, very sort of small place and quite sort of polarised. It, it was extraordinary. And it just sort of showed to me that irrespective of whether art, as we discuss it today as an asset class, was really something of that nature in those days, it was just something which... These pictures had to be collected. And of course, they went into phenomenal collections and a handful of them actually went into the late uh, Gianni Versace's collection. And again, I mean, a group of them came back to sell when we auctioned off Gianni's collection of Picassos as well. And over the years, I mean, it's interesting, actually, there's a number of artists who I keep coming back to for a variety of different reasons. I mean, principally Picasso, because he was one that just had a profound effect on me very early on in my career. And I think many of these artists have just become the benchmarks, if you like, for collecting in the 21st century. And I mean, the other one is, is probably Andy Warhol too. And I remember particularly when a, gr a great colleague, Tobias Meyer, started working at Sotheby's in New York and actually he won the consignment of the Orange Marilyn painting, which um, Cy Newhouse acquired. And I remember it was the very first time that Warhol, I think I'm right in saying, broke the $10 million bracket. And at mm. the time we sold it in November 1998, that was just a completely unheard of kind of level of price. But again, it was the right picture, it had the right provenance, it came from an incredibly distinguished German collection and found the right home in size collection. And in fact, you know, that was very much kind of, you know, the first opportunity that Tobias had to work with, with, with Sai. And again, illustrated to me just how meaningful great collectors are. And actually, funny enough, I remember going to Sai's collection actually with Tobias. And that was a truly profound moment in, in my career when he talked about a Jackson Pollock painting, which actually the late owner of Sotheby's, Alfred Taubman, had had in his collection at one time. And it's a painting that Sai had already owned once. He made the mistake of selling it. Al, Al Taubman bought the picture and, of course, Sai regretted it ever since and just said, look, I had to have this picture back again. Ended up paying a multiple for what he'd sold it for. But the, the, the joy and the kind of, you know, the, 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 the sense of kind of belonging of having this picture back in his collection was just the, the key thing for him. And, you know, I think, you know, people talk about collecting as a, as a kind of illness or a sickness, and it's true. I think the great <laughs> collectors of this world, they think about this um, arguably too much at times, but aside from making their fortunes and working on great personal happiness and satisfaction and great family lives, I mean, collecting has just become something of profound interest to people. And I, it's really exciting, actually, in this day and age when the nature of collecting is changing so much and as people start to navigate how they want to become known as collectors in the 21st century, and particularly, you know, this question, question of private patronage and to what extent that can get into the public realm. And, you know, I'm thinking of collectors like Tom Hill, for example, or Glenn Furman. I think these are really interesting questions. I do too. I do too. So you're talking about these incredible objects and making references to phenomenal prices and record-setting numbers, and, and you, you referenced the Picasso from Emily Fisher Lando's collection, and, and I'd love to actually have you talk about that. And maybe before we go there, I think it would also be interesting to 
ask what advice you give to people who are just starting to collect. And people come into the market, of course, at all sorts of different price points. They might come in at a six or seven figure starting place, or they might come in at a lower price point. But what what do you tell people who are, are just starting out? Because you did reference the fact that this massive intergenerational transfer of wealth is about to happen. And, and I'm seeing that a lot where, where I live currently. And it would be great to to have you talk a little bit about what advice you do give people who are who are just starting. The best piece of advice any collector can have is is really just the the, the question of application. I think it's, you know, the advice in terms of kind of making sure that you look as much as possible and you learn and you read and you visit as many great collections and museum collections as as one possibly can. Because I think that for a number of kind of wealthy aspirational kind of collectors, often the first collection they put together is the one that they're least satisfied with, but they need to kind Mm -hmm. of dip the toe in the water. And I think that also, just like anyone does in the normal walk of life when it comes to buying a car or buying a, listening to a certain type of music or buying clothes, you're going to make a mistake once in a while. I think that's another thing which collectors are very reticent about owning up to, but all collectors, and, you know, I can speak from experience as a kind of slight fledgling collector. I have an embryonic private collection of my own, but you're going to make a mistake once in a while. And I think, you know, it's, it, it's having the honesty and the integrity to kind of stand up and say, well, you know, I bought this. And at the time, you know, I thought that the reasons were great because I'd met the artist or I liked a particular show by that artist or I liked the Biennale that that artist was a part of and the movement of that artist was was a part of. And, you know, our taste changes, I think, with time as well. So I think before dipping one's toe in the water and, and notwithstanding the fact that buying contemporary art in particular has become an incredibly expensive hobby, I think the capacity to kind of look particularly at museums or exciting curators or biennales or, you know, next year we'll be celebrating obviously the Venice Biennale as well. There is that opportunity to kind of talk to people or look at the museum websites that are out there today. I mean, I think the level of information and the transparency of the world that we're living in is greater than at any previous time in history. And I think the capacity, I live in London, but at any given time in London at the moment, we've got the most incredible museum shows that are on, you know, whether it be Sarah Lucas at Tate Britain at the moment, or Nicole Eisenman at the White Chapel, or there's a great Sugimoto show on at the Hayward, or there's Franz Howells at the National Gallery, or there's a great Holbein show at the Queen's Gallery. And you know, there's always, and that you could say the same for, you know, your institution or the same for New York or the same for Paris. And I just think that for collectors before they do anything is just to look and to read and do as much as they can. Because, you know, we all meet collectors who sadly are too inspired by what they hear, particularly from art advisors or people in the market, as opposed to kind of the integrity or honesty of looking with their own eyes. And that's not to say that kind of collectors can get it right immediately. It's, you know, the art world is a very difficult place to navigate, particularly if you don't know certain people in key roles within it. And it's, it's, in my role as chairman of Sotheby's, it's certainly one of the things I'm very conscious of, that it's actually Sotheby's and, and Christie's and other auction houses are perceived to be very elitist institutions, which to an extent they are. I do believe that we try to tear down that sort of edifice, if you like, as best as we possibly can. But even the medium of auction is quite hard for people to understand if they've never sat at an auction or don't understand that culture, you know, because we live in a retail environment. So the idea that you can't buy something off the shelf, that you have to wait for a period of time. And even when you get to the date and time of the auction, you can't pay one price. You have to kind of potentially modify what your price, what your purchase price is going to be. I mean, that, that doesn't necessarily suit people's retail instincts. But just going back to the question, I mean, I think that 
having an opportunity to educate oneself about the type of artists that you want to collect and also thinking about the coherence or cohesion of how a collection can look is supremely important. But I still think, particularly when it comes to contemporary art, visiting art fairs, I mean, we're just on the eve of the Miami Art Fair, for example, Art Basel. Again, that's such a great opportunity to kind of go to one place which singly has the pick of the crop of kind of contemporary art galleries, as well as great private collections. So, and collectors these days also, I think, are much more open and accessible than they've ever, ever been before. I mean, I know you've interviewed many of them, Heidi, and, uh, you know, I'm sure that more of them are happy and open to sharing their histories um, than ever before. And, you know, I, I think the other thing is that, you know, profoundly talented collectors and thinking of collectors of, of like Howard Rashofsky, Howard and Cindy, you know, they are not only reasonably accessible because of the way that they collect, but they've also got incredible relationships with institutions. So Howard and Cindy, in their case, obviously with the Dallas Art Museum, but equally with Amphar and the two-by-two two auction that they do in Dallas every year. Those are some of the most inspirational contemporary collectors that I can think of because they're really open about what they do and you can go and visit their warehouses and see what they've collected. And I think that's truly inspirational. I do too. I do too. And your reference to the idea that collecting can be sort of like a, a sickness or an illness or an obsession. And I, I think that's the case. And I think that it's so exciting to see it happen to people because it there's a moment, right, where it's a certain object or a, a certain experience and it just kind of happens. And you, you can sort of see it almost in someone's eyes, like in the way that they light up and and they just know something that they didn't know before. And I think that's honestly one of the secrets to life is to continue to learn and to be surprised and to be delighted. And for me, art is the one thing that continues to just do that again and again. I couldn't agree more. And, and I think actually kind of particularly given the kind of very turbulent nature of the world that we, we're living in, and I think the, the, the level of global uncertainty that's out there, I think art is a place of incredible solace both in terms of kind of comfort, but I think also in terms of kind of the challenging nature of art and, you know, who better to challenge on the kind of the status of the global environment that we're living in than artists, you know, whether they be visual artists or indeed performance-based artists or filmmakers or writers in some way as well. And I think that the confluence of all these different activities in the visual arts world is probably one of the most sort of potent areas that one can possibly think of. And I think the other thing is that the dialogue around more challenging arts is only becoming ever more permeating and most major cities in the world of course are served by incredibly good museums institutions dialogues on arts and i think as as some um, i suppose key employees in that global industry i think it's our responsibility to kind of you know pass that on for the new generation but i think also i've always operated on the basis of, of long-term relationships and you know there are times when collectors they, they change what they're collecting or they change their engagement with an artist's work or they want to be challenged in a particularly different way. I mean, I can think of an Australian client I work with very closely who spent the majority of his life buying contemporary art. And he's got to a point in his collecting career where large parts of that collection have now been given to an institution. And he's starting again and he's buying Greek and Roman antiquities, which is really exciting. <laughs> yeah, I know a lot of people like that. And I have a future guest coming up who, without giving too much away during the pandemic, started to collect knives and some major, major collector of contemporary art. But the point is that, you know, he loves collecting. He is just an insatiable collector and the, the tastes can change, the interests 
can evolve and it's still the idea of wanting to be deeply immersed in learning about something. I, I think that's very much the case. I, I think that a large part of why a collector kind of starts another new collection is, is partly down to financial means because clearly buying contemporary art in particular can be very expensive. And I, I think there are collectors who possibly get slightly frustrated, maybe either by the cost of art or by the, the associated costs of owning great art, whether it be transportation or shipping or storage or insurance, or because they feel as if, you know, with galleries, they're not necessarily first in line to get access, particularly to a kind of particularly hot young artist. Um, but I think, as you say, I mean, there are other collecting areas where possibly these are not uh, well-pursued collecting areas, possibly on a, on a kind of object-by-object object basis, they're far more advantageous, their price point. And I think also it might be possible in certain cases to build a far more encyclopedic collection as well. I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting to me when we have this dialogue about, well, Old master collecting is very difficult because the best examples are all in museums or in precious to modern art, the best examples are all in major institutions. And there is some truth in that, but I'm amazed by the ingenuity of collectors to still find incredible works of art. And, you know, even this morning, I went to see the Impressions to Modern Works on Paper exhibition of the Royal Academy, and quite a large proportion of the works in that show, whether they be by Seurat or Kaibot or Digger uh, or Van Gogh, they all came from private collections. And these are things that have never been seen before very infrequently. And it just reminded me that in most fields, as long as you have the kind of the patience, the means financially, obviously, is a key necessity, but also the kind of that insatiable desire to own the best objects, you can still pull together the most incredible collections, no matter what the field. So you referenced a, I don't know what the adjective you used to describe it, but some kind of collection yourself. And I'm curious, what do you collect and what do you live with? Well, when, it, when I started, I mean, solely because I wasn't getting paid terribly much at, at Sotheby's as a kind of junior catalogue, but um, I worked in New York for a short period of time and I sort of started an embryonic collection of works on paper by artists that I really respected. And, you know, the, the reason that I was buying drawings or watercolours or works on paper largely was because they were the cheapest idiom by that sort of particular artist. But I think also I suddenly realised that there's a level of integrity and honesty to work on paper. I mean, particularly given that it's very hard sometimes, depending on the medium, of course, to kind of make corrections. But I've been lucky enough to own a great Peter Doig work on paper, two great Laura Owens drawings, Chris Ophelia, all of the above, which I bought from Gavin Brown's Enterprise in the early 1990s, when many of these artists were sort of somewhat emerging. Then I've kind of, you know, I've, I've bought examples of Roman antiquity sculpture. Um, I bought Roman glass. And then more recently, I've started buying paintings. So I'm lucky enough to own a great painting by Herbin Anderson. I've got a couple of Damien Hirst works, which were gifts from Damien as a, a result of working closely with him on the pharmacy cell and the beautiful Inside My Mind Forever uh, exhibitions and auctions that we organized. But even most recently, I bought a painting by an artist called Celeste Rippone, who I love, Spencer Lewis, who I absolutely adore, and Tom Anholt. So it, it's like we've been discussing. I, I, I'm just still permanently curious, endlessly kind of fascinated by young contemporary art. And it's just such a wonderful thing to live around, you know, with, with my wife and kids at home. I was just thinking about seeing Peter Doig's first exhibition at Gavin Brown's Enterprise and how the paintings, it was such a small space and there were only two paintings there, one on either wall. And that was the inspiration for me to invite Peter to come and do 
what became his first solo show, solo museum show in America at the Berkeley Art Museum, and just what it felt like to be with those two massive paintings in that little tiny space. And I don't know if you saw that exhibition as well. It was, I can't even remember what street it was on. It was kind of like west of Soho. And it's just so exciting to be able to have these long time relationships, as you're talking about, with collectors, but also with artists. And and I know that you you have that as well. I, I think that's that's absolutely true. It's, it's so interesting, actually, now, whenever I kind of see or hear any kind of biopic about London, particularly given that this is the city where, where I've spent the majority of my life, it's certainly where I was born, but any, any sort of history or biopic about London in the early 1990s is so fascinating to me because at that time is so fresh in my mind, albeit when you think back, I mean, it was a totally different time. It was somewhat lawless. Contemporary art galleries, particularly as they related to kind of some of the YBA artists, were not necessarily the best known galleries in the middle of town. You know, we're not talking about Anthony Doffe Gallery or Leslie Waddington. And, and, you know, and the London art scene at the time was somewhat kind of prosaic. But, you know, suddenly, particularly with Damien Hirst and that generation, here was a group of artists who wanted to kind of take on the established art world and start building, in many cases, actually, their own artist-run spaces, but in kind of places like Spitalfields, where at the time, even for a Londoner, were kind of out of bounds. I mean, you just didn't want to go there, quite frankly, or Old Street. And yet that's where some of the best galleries, certainly the most exciting galleries, like City Racing or when Sadie Coles first opened in London, this is where some of the best shows were were on view. And particularly remember Victoria Merowatchi when she was on Cork Street and seeing Chris Afili for the very first time when Chris was a really kind of down-at-heel artist and driving around in his kind of lime green kind of Ford Capri. It, it was it was just a really essential moment. And actually when Jay Jopling opened his very first space, which was literally a white cube at the back of Christie's on St. James's, and seeing, I think one of his very first exhibitions was a, I'm trying to think who he, who he put on at sort of early doors. Uh, Julie Moretti, weirdly, was one of his very first shows, I think after Tracy and after Damien. But I mean, certainly in the case of Julie Moretti, seeing a couple of paintings in a really small space, I think had a similarly profound effect on me as as the Doig experience you just just mentioned. So let's talk a little bit about the recent auctions and and particularly that Picasso painting. And we were scheduled to speak prior and, and then we pushed forward. And and there are some things as as you started really before we started recording, um, kind of referencing like the art world continues to change and evolve and 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 does so kind of at a, a rapid clip sometimes. So, you know, what's new over the last few weeks? I think I, th- I think it's an interesting environment in the art world at the, at the moment because I can't think of, in a way, more turbulent headwinds running into kind of a major auction season as we had in New York two weeks ago obviously with the kind of confluence of events of what's happening in the Middle East or what's been happening financially in China or what's been happening with interest rates in the West. And I think it's sort of general sort of financial malaise that seems to permeate the kind of, you know, the the, the press and environments that we operate in. So going into our November sales seasons and bearing in mind, particularly for the Impressionist Modern Contemporary Markets, the two key major sales seasons of our year are May and November in New York and then also February March and June in London. But November, by all accounts, is, is, a, is a really major kind of bellwether, if you like, of the market. So against all of this, we didn't feel as if actually kind of environmentally people's confidence was as high as it might possibly be. And yet we were offering the kind of the profound collection, legacy collection of Emily Fisher-Lando, who died aged 102 last year, 
and had amassed this extraordinary collection of principally post-war American masterpieces, but actually permeated by a handful of major European artists, not least Pablo Picasso. And there was a wonderful anecdote, actually, that Emily Fisher Lando had a break-in in her New York apartment roughly in 1967, when she had some jewellery stolen from a safe in the, in the apartment. And instead of going out to replace the jewellery, she actually spent the kind of the insurance payout on a Picasso. And mm-hmm. this just happened to be a 1932 Picasso of Mary Therese, which Picasso indeed had kept in his collection since the date of execution in 1932, actually August to be precise, until 1967, when actually Ernst Beiler, the kind of the famous gallerist, had gone down to Mougin, one of Picasso's last studios, and persuaded Picasso to sell this picture, which then immediately made its way to New York and to Arnie Glimscher, who was opening and running Pace Gallery at the time. And Emily Fischerlander walked in as a kind of very young, fresh-faced collector and acquired this picture. I think, in fact, I think it was the third work of art that went into her collection after a, a beautiful Albers painting and a colder mobile. And it just struck me, actually, when I heard that story, just how profoundly ambitious she was as a kind of fledgling collector to kind of go out and acquire something like that, which, of course, you know, at the time cost very little. And we've just recently resold this picture for just over $120 million hammer price, so before you add our buyer's premium. And again, 1932 is arguably kind of the great apogee of Picasso's output. I think from a kind of commercial perspective, this is a kind of annus mirabilis when he is married to Olga Koklova, his first wife, and yet he's got this sort of illicit affair going on with Marie Therese Welter, who he'd met famously outside the Gallery Lafayette in Paris when she was only 17. He'd installed her in Boisjoloup, just outside of the north side of Paris. And indeed, in August night, or just before in June 1932, he had an exhibition at the Gallery Georges Petit, which is the first of his major lifetime survey exhibitions, largely inspired by Matisse, who'd had a show the year before. And of course, Picasso being sort of eminently competitive, particularly with Matisse, decided that he had to have this great show. And this is the very first time when the show was opened, when the image of Mary Therese sort of permeated the show. And obviously, everybody realized that he was having this. There was another woman on the scene. But actually, the painting that we saw from Emily's collection came from just after this exhibition, where suddenly the imagery of Mary Therese becomes a lot more clear, and she appears as a kind of Cleopatra-style female entity within the picture plane, and it's a wonderful, very bold rendition. And this is a painting that had been in Emily's collection since 1968, as I mentioned, so it had been tucked away for the best part of 60 years, which again is incredibly exciting, or certainly over 50, 52 or three years, how pictures of that stature kind of come up to market, and then suddenly they disappear again. You know, so I would say that the anticipation and excitement of it coming up for market was extraordinary. I think that the back, the backdrop in terms of confidence running into the auctions was certainly kind of challenging. But actually, given the white glove nature of the Emily Fisherland sale, which effectively indicates that we've sold a collection 100%, it's a bit of a kind of auctioneer's nirvana moment in a way, is very much kind of a signal of kind of how anticipated the market was to this incredible collection. Plus, also, we talked at the beginning about how you know, the auction business has changed. And I think one of the key ways that it's changed is that, you know, in the old days, we very much were almost like a wholesaler to the trade. And end user private collector was not necessarily something that we either knew or looked after terribly well. But I think that's changed radically. I think we have relationships with a number of kind of private collectors as much as we do the trade, who are incredibly important to our, our institution as well. I think the other thing is that also we've become a lot smarter in the way that we market our sales too. So... I think that going into the sales, there was a great deal of 
tentativeness about whether they would be successful. And, you know, at the end of the day, art and buying art is very much a kind of luxury purchase. And, you know, at this moment in time, I think a lot of people, collectors, no matter how wealthy or deep-pocketed they may be, don't necessarily feel particularly good about spending large amounts of money. But there's a kind of efficiency, I think, to auction too. And you know, if you want to participate, you have to do so by a certain time and a certain date. And in that respect, it's a quick yes, no sort of answer, which for me in the art business, I've always kind of slightly enjoyed. I mean, every time that we do private sales, which we do many of, it's just a very different sort of discussion with a collector. It can be more drawn out. It can be much more difficult. There's much more room for negotiation. So I love the efficiency of auction as well as, you know, the ability it has to tell us more globally, you know, what the state of the market is or where taste is going as well. Yeah. You made a reference earlier about the fact that, I mean, there are positive and negatives to auction, right? So this idea of the expediency and then knowing and, and having it be done, there's excitement around that and attractiveness. And earlier you were talking about how some people might not want to not know what something's going to cost them or the variability of it or how many other people are going to want it. And so it kind of can, can go both ways. And And I'm curious, I think that you play a, a key role in getting people to spend more than they maybe were planning to. And I have experience of, of you doing that on, on the charity auction side, of course, having worked with you for many years on the Art Crush auction in Aspen. And there's a, a difference, obviously, when someone is bidding on something and they're getting a, a charitable contribution donation for acquiring works of art over the fair market value. But I, I wonder if, if you think that's true at, at all auctions and, and that kind of encouragement, because I do think that in that role, you're an arbiter of, of taste and value and that kind of encouragement makes people feel better about you know what it is they're willing to to spend look I, I it would be very crass of me to say that one of my roles i guess is to you know whether it be in a charity seller or a Sotheby's auction is to get the very best price for the vendor or the beneficiary in the case of a charity auction but equally one of the reasons that i hope that i'm reasonably successful at auctioneering is the fact that in large part i know the product that we're selling incredibly well indeed mm-hmm. many of the objects that i'm selling as an auctioneer i've had a key role in actually getting consigned or or having been involved in the negotiation around their consignment to Sotheby's. So I feel very passionately and personally kind of engaged with that object and particularly the owners behind it. And I think that's another thing also. I think that whether it be auction houses or whether it even be in the gallery, commercial gallery world, it's, it's one thing, I think, to know an object and to love an object and to kind of treat it as a kind of commodity. But I think it's a totally different thing to know the owner behind the object. And, you know, for me, for me personally, I think, you know, I, I, I've always looked at the two as interchangeable and equally important because at the end of the day, without the collectors, we don't have auctions, but without the objects, we don't have auctions as well. So I think to look at the two together is an incredibly powerful and very profound combination. I think the other thing also is that many collectors, particularly when they first start out working with an auction house, will often kind of give you a very low value thing or perhaps an object which is sort of somewhat problematic because of its condition or maybe it's not something that's thoroughly aligned with the taste of that particular day. And I I think it's dependent on how you respond as a professional to those objects and those opportunities that often will inform a collector to say, okay, well, you know, he or she has proven themselves and we're now going to work on something a little bit more valuable or, you know, give them the opportunity to help advise me from a bigger perspective on a major collection or deaccession advice. And I think that goes the same for for, for being the principal auctioneer at Sotheby's. I mean, I 
sit in on all of the interest meetings in the run-up to our sales. I advise many of the buyers who are actually thinking of acquiring works at sale. As I say, I'm either involved as somebody negotiating the, the sales of particular objects or you know, I, I can opine on their value or their importance within an artist's work because actually for much of my career at Sotheby's, I was either an expert in the Impressionist Modern Department or latterly in the Contemporary Department. So it, it's it's really exciting to me when I stand up at the front of the auction house to kind of look at it at a room. I mean, albeit somewhat petrifying because of the public nature of those auctions and the kind of the entertainment requirement. But when I look at the room and I kind of wonder, okay, what's that major dealer doing here? You know, he wasn't here six months ago when I stood up. And then in the back of my mind, I kind of think, well, actually, I know why he or she is here because... They're representing a client for that major Agnes Martin painting that, that's coming up. And I think that's the other thing. It's it's picking up these signs from the room or picking up the signs of mm-hmm. the environment of the market when works of art. I mean, you know, Agnes Martin is a, is a great case in point. We had the most wonderful 1962 gold ground Agnes Martin painting that was part of the Emily Fisher Landau painting. And it's the only one outside a major institutional collection which could ever be bought privately. And against a comparatively low estimate of, I think, six to eight million dollars, you know, it made over 20. And that was a really exciting moment because, you know, clearly the estimate was somewhat low, didn't fully and efficiently describe the scarcity and the, and the kind of the wonder of this particular object. But even though this broke the records, the the, the artist's world record price, I, I think it was worth every single penny that, that the buyer paid because, you know, she is such a profoundly important 20, 20th century, 21st century artist. I think she's also one of the most important female artists ever. And I think to yeah. acquire the greatest works of art by a modern master like Agnes Martin, I mean, you can't go wrong. And I think that's often the case. I mean, I've never met a collector who, in spite of paying a record price, if they're buying the right thing, buying the right artist, I mean, normally, 99 times out of 100, they will always be rewarded whether financially if it comes to reselling that particular object or just in terms of the level of enjoyment and sophistication that they will they will they they, they will achieve by living with it yeah i think it's so important to talk about all the work that goes into the the moments that the public gets to see works come up for sale and the idea of valuing objects understanding who owned them being able to refer to them really as old friends. And it's such an amazing thing when you go into someone's home and you see something that you've seen in other places before and you're like, oh, there you are. You know, I'm so happy to see you again. <laughs> it's it's like it really like an old friend, right? And and as these, these objects move around, we started earlier talking about how the space of, of presentation affects the object and, and certainly what objects are living with other objects that has such an impact as well. So it's not just necessarily like the furniture in the space or the light, which we talked about, but it's it's who the objects get to be in company with. And, and this idea that, you know, works of art are really these kind of organic living things that do, yeah, they have personalities, not just what they look like, but what they feel like. I think it's so true. I mean, I remember one of my first experiences or kind of memories it, it, it just in art was was when I was about seven years old and I remember walking into the Tate Gallery in Millbank which of course was Tate there was no Tate model there was no Tate Britain it was just Tate in those days and I remember it was Christmas time and I was approached by a journalist to say are you here to do the kind of the Tate Christmas quiz which is still a thing <laughs> and I was interviewed for an interview that went out on Radio 4 and I remember listening back to it with my parents and 
I think I was doing a drawing in front of Matisse's famous collage, The Snail, which is part of the Tate's collection, or, I, or maybe I was in front of Roy Lichtenstein's Wham or um, Jacob Epstein's Angel, which, you know, even then as a kid had a hugely profound impact on me. And, you know, often I would go back to Tate at different times in my life. You know, particularly I remember when my parents got divorced, it was a particularly turbulent time for me in my life. And I would go there almost like a almost like a sort of place of therapy. You know, I'm not particularly religious, but that was a place that was really important to me physically as a kind of sanctuary. It was just really important to see Rodin's kiss in the Central Divine Gallery, for example, or to see a great Giacometti Caroline portrait in that room of Giacometti's. And the same thing I think happens with the greatest collectors. And I mean, please, please don't kind of think for a second that, you know, just as being part of the commercial art world, we're not profoundly respectful towards the way that collectors both live and put objects together in dialogue. I remember, for example, going to see Linda and Harry Macklow's collection before that was sold at auction and then broken up. And there there was a collector who, you know, for whom the art was of pivotal importance, but equally was physically so within their, impart, in their apartment and environment. I mean, those objects you know, was center stage, I, you know, that that's one of the collections and, and physical locations, which are, came as bad as close to a major museum installation as I could possibly think. And it's the same for other collectors. I mean, you, one has the kind of capacity to say, you know, Chara Schreyer is another one. We, we handled her estate very recently in New York, and here was a profoundly educated collector who very sadly I never had the opportunity of meeting, but she had studied art history in San Francisco in the late 1960s and was clearly profoundly influenced by the kind of the student um, riots, both in Europe and America at that time, and was engaged throughout her life in terms of women's rights and, and um, you know, was profoundly influenced by Duchamp and postmodernism. And her collection starts with Duchamp and ended up with great young artists, Mark Bradford and others who are very socially engaged artists as well, taking in along the way everything from Merritt Oppenheim to Amy Silman to Donald Judd to Frank Stella to Hans Bellmer and Lee Bontecu and it was just an incredibly sophisticated collection which again was entirely formed around environment indeed she built a house which she euphemistically referred to as the art house and I, I'm sure if she were alive today she would say I'm a custodian of these objects for one particular moment in time and it's my interpretation of how they have relationships together that makes them unique but again they'll reclaim that uniqueness once they join another collection I think that's where art can be just sort of so interesting in the way that it can have these relationships in in in, uh, in dialogue with other other objects yeah Chara Schreier was an incredible woman. I was fortunate to know her and and to visit the art house multiple times. And you're right. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, lucky us, right? The life, the life is is so extraordinary. I want to ask you, just as we're getting close to the end, about life. And I do want to just acknowledge the fact that you reference living with objects with your family and then also your parents' divorce and how art kept you company in that time and my affinity with both of those statements and those experiences because I think they're important to acknowledge. And I can see you on video, you're wearing an aura ring, which I also am wearing, and I know that you also enjoy the outdoors and, and exercising and and without making any assumptions or or kind of setting up the question, how else do you live? What else do you do um, to, to balance your, your life? Well, I, I'm definitely, I mean, when, when I set out in this business, I never thought that I would be 
anything like as sort of institutionally based as I, as I have become over sort of 30 years. And I'm profoundly kind of aware of the kind of my public and, and private personas, obviously working at Sotheby's and, and having this kind of incredible responsibility, but privilege of being chairman of Sotheby's Europe, but equally someone who's comparatively kind of visible, I suppose, on a kind of global basis, and particularly given my auction activities in, in well, globally, but particularly in America, I'm very aware that I'm on much of the time. And what I do in my private life is not only incredibly important to me, but it's also kind of like a perfect tonic to, to what I'm doing in my public life. But at the same time, you know, I'm profoundly personal and private in that respect. So exercise is a big deal for me. Certainly, I'm a major cyclist. I'm into cycling in a very big way, which actually, Heidi, when we worked together in Aspen was one of the great reasons to come to Aspen, apart from working with you on those great charity auctions, was that the opportunity of kind of going up maroon bells was just too good to turn down, basically. But equally, you know, to cycle with people like Lance Armstrong was a kind of, you know, was a dream come true, ultimately. So, 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 so that's kind of one thing. I'm married with two kids. And obviously, you know, my family is, again, incredibly important to me. Music is another kind of major outlet. So, I mean, again... I used to be a DJ at university. I, I have a collection, actually, unfortunately, in storage at the moment of over 5,000 records, which, I mean, again, is is a, a little-known fact about, about me. But funnily enough, I think the fact that I was a DJ and like that kind of public performance aspect of that activity has somehow sort of led me, I suppose, also to auctioneering and trying to orchestrate the kind of the movement to choreography of an auction room, a little bit like a DJ might as well, I guess. So that that takes up a huge amount of my time as well. Travel's another one. I mean, you know, much as I do a lot of travel for work, and I've been incredibly lucky to visit a number of different places around the world, which, which I was unlikely to go to without having been in the kind of, you know, Sotheby's role, I mean, that again is a kind of, you know, that, that ability to kind of constantly go back and see things. And, you know, we're super lucky, I guess, in Europe, just having easy access to major cities like Paris, you know, on our doorstep. I mean, that that's a source of that renewed fascination kind of all the time, as well as trying to get out of London as much as possible. I'm very much a kind of an urban character. I love the great outdoors. I think going to kind of beautiful places, actually getting to know America and, and you know, in a way, everything in between Los Angeles and London, and uh, sorry, Los Angeles and New York has been one of the greatest privileges as well, because there's very little landscape that I've experienced personally, at least around the world, that's as profound as some of the things you come across in America. I mean, it's it's, it's a country of, of huge interest, beauty, antagonism, contradictions, opportunity, uh, politics, kind of all sorts of different things. So I'm fascinated by that as well. Great, great. It's so wonderful to spend time with you this morning for me. And I'm not sure where you are, so what the time is there for you. But I just enjoy your company so much and your enthusiasm and eloquence and energy around things that we share a love for is is just always so inspiring for me. So thank you for sharing it with me and, and with our audience today. I'm really grateful. Well, likewise, Heidi, this has been totally inspirational kind of, you know, and really fascinating. And thank you too for your inspiration as well. Thank you. Hope to see you soon. My next guest is artist Mindy Shapiro. That conversation was recorded in front of a live audience at the Orange County Museum of Art and I have shown Mindy's work over time starting in a exhibition called Like Color in Pictures at the Aspen Art Museum in 2006. 
there were a lot of artists that I love that were included in that exhibition and it became sort of a formative show for me and, and for a lot of others. Mindy's work is also included in the Orange County Museum of Art and I included her in the 13 Women exhibition when we opened. The conversation is fun and I know you'll enjoy it. Please tune in. As always, super grateful for your time and attention. About Art is part of the Why Art Matters Project, a global initiative that makes art accessible, relevant, and transformational. We connect all to art through books, a podcast series, talks, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was mixed by William Melbourne. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listen, as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We'll be back again every other Tuesday with new episodes. Thank you so much for being part of our community.